Welcome to Frame Rate. This is Gary, and this is a show where we're gonna frame stuff and we're gonna rate stuff. And hopefully, more often than not, I'm gonna be joined by a cool guest that I find to talk to me about uh, their interesting point of view and what kind of they're into, and we'll review something. So, uh, I'm really excited about this episode because I got Delphin Solomon, a friend of mine who's a local stand up comic here in Bangkok to uh, talk to me about comedy, uh, stand-up scene in Bangkok, the stand-up scene in Hong Kong, where he was going for his Hong Kong International Comedy Competition. And uh, we talked about Blade Runner 2049. He was also a film student, and he's a big film buff, always uh, posting his lists of uh, top 10 films on, on, on Facebook and stuff. So <laughs> I'm really happy to just sit down and have a good conversation about all that stuff with him. So again, this is Frame Rate, the show where we're going to frame stuff, we're going to rate stuff, we'll get some context, we'll get some opinions, and I hope you guys like it. Uh, if you want to tell other people to listen along, I'm on uh, Apple Music, or sorry, Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and you can listen and call in on Anchor. Uh, go to anchor.fm slash framerate, or uh, download the Anchor app, and you can just shoot me a call in. You record a quick uh, one-minute little voice recording, and you can send it in, and I'll answer your call on the air. It's a really cool new little app, new little radio station experience, and uh, I love being able to uh, also turn them into podcasts. So uh, shoot me some love. Uh, let me know what you thought about Blade Runner. And uh, check out my conversation with Delphin. Cool. All right. Delphin. So, Hong Kong International Comedy Competition. <laughs> I read it down, so I got it right. Hong Kong International Comedy Competition coming up October 26th, 28th. Do you know which day you're going on? I'll be uh, performing on the 27th. I'll be leaving on the 26th uh, to support the other comedians uh, performing. Is a whole range of comedians from many different countries. There's like, there's like 30 of them, right? Uh, yes, 30 of them. And there's only nine finalists. And they're all from like all over like Southeast Asia. We have people from Philippines, uh, Singapore, Malaysia. Um, I'm the only Indonesian. Nice. Uh, Represent. Uh, yes. Other ties? Uh, no, no ties in this one. Are there other people coming from Bangkok? Uh, only one other comedian, yes. Who's that? Uh, and a Filipino dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. I saw Stacy last night at the show. I was wondering if she's she's performing. Uh, uh, yeah, Stacy uh, um, will be leaving uh, November 19th, so that was pretty much like uh, her like last performance. Oh, no way. In Bangkok, so. But it was nice. It was great to see her. So, so this competition what happens if you win uh, I get to uh, it there's three there's three uh, places the first place I think you win about 40,000 Hong Kong dollars oh, wow. uh, and the second I think it's 3,000 Hong Kong dollars and the third place is a thousand Hong Kong dollars the first place you get the money and you get to do a, a tour in America <laughs> Wait, really how, how, how long big of a tour uh, I think it's a, a month tour I think in, in four four to five different cities Wow, that's really cool. Um, so if you 
go for the this upcoming weekend and then you do well you go back for the fourth november fourth oh yes i have to so um yeah. basically like i'm performing uh this weekend and if i <laughs> if i make it then you I, have to pay for I have, have to, so. yeah I have, to, I have to come back for work you know so like i'm, I'm paying to compete but but you know what? Like I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that I made this competition because I tried out uh, twice already and um, I didn't make it. It means like uh, didn't make, not making it has really motivated me and bettered me. In Was this company. one of your uh, kind of goals then? Like indeed, definitely a goal because the Hong Kong comedy scene is really good and uh, Jameson Gong, who runs it, is a, a real. Um, veteran in the comedy scene around like uh, in the world like um he's like uh, has he started from new york and he started this uh, comedy club called takeout comedy in hong kong is that where it is that's where it is yes nice so. cool would you say hong kong's out of southeast asian cities kind of the most it's one of vibrant the, comedy scene it's one of those key cities because like a lot of um, the comedians from uh, america and um, europe uh, especially like uh, england go to Hong Kong because Jameson Gong it's uh, like pretty connected and stuff and he's uh, well, like, like I said well known in the comedy community in the world mm. so like they just like um, contact him and they perform at Hong Kong and then like there's uh, the other countries in Asia so basically like the clubs uh, contact each other and then they uh, go on tour on the other countries where, where is it in Hong Kong the, the it, club it's at Elgin Street in Hong Kong is that like what district is that? Or what, um, I have no idea, no. but like it's a pretty like a popular district. A lot near, of near like where you go down, go out downtown. Like, like some, yeah, Fong, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. A, it's like um, the district where Central. Like, uh, a lot of bars and right. pubs are. So it well, makes sense. So. I like Hong Kong. I wonder what would be the difference because Bangkok's comedy scene has kind of been slower, smaller. Uh, I wouldn't call it slower or smaller. It's um, it's has it's ha it has made its mark. Right, but I believe that it definitely brought in some headliners. Oh, it did, indeed, know, different, it's, uh, different people. It's just uh, I believe that the the local scene needs to move faster in in um, developing material. Do you think it's a language barrier thing? Not a language barrier because there are expats here. It's just like you, um, but do you think are there more expats in Hong Kong or is it just the the guy this, this well, Jason guy? Well, the thing it's like Hong Kong is smaller than Bangkok. It's right. like. A, it's much tighter and obviously like it's much more expensive and Bangkok has so many varieties of, of things to do people mm -hmm. go out to clubs people go to cheaper places I mean like when a, a comedy show is worth going to in Bangkok it's yes of course it depends on the headliner but also like um, there, there needs to be a local scene that, that needs support but that support will happen if the local if the local scene keeps developing its um, its integrity of of their of their um, comedy material mm -hmm. because like for example like comedians and local scene need to like watch out of uh, uh, doing jokes about Bangkok itself like the obvious things Lady Boys and, right right all and, played out stuff and uh, getting ripped off by a taxi driver and, and uh, the the stereotypes and cliches or the well known uh, annoyances mm -hmm. of Bangkok mm -hmm. I'm not saying you don't think you can't do them. I'm the saying people, the people that do these jokes are also like new to comedy in general. No, I think there's there's some uh, uh, comedians who have been here for for a while. You know, like it's um, but like I said, they need to develop. If they, if that's if it's their goal to actually want to be professionals in the future, I believe that 
Like you need to, to always try new stuff. There are comedians that try new stuff. I respect comedians who try new stuff. And if it bombs, it bombs. You know, like at least you know like uh, what to fix. Mm-hmm. But uh, but if like you feel like you've uh, you did it once and you got all the laughs you needed, that's that's not the end of it. That doesn't mean that that joke is always gonna kill elsewhere outside Thailand. It's like right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's Every all, audience is different. It's all about perspective. So, have you workshop jokes here that you're like unsure of how they'll play in Hong Kong? Um, yes, of course. I mean, like uh, that's why like uh, we need to practice. We need to. Uh, s- have you have you performed in Hong Kong before? No, this will be my first time. But you've been to that comedy. No, place. I've never been. It's my first time in in that Hong Kong comedy club. Oh, okay, so, yeah. so you're not even sure what kinds of what kinds of sets people do there. Well, I thought I know uh, the comedians who are from Hong Kong that perform in in Thailand. So last year there was this uh, show in Bangkok. I don't remember which international comedy show it was, or maybe it was even two years ago. There was this bald guy from Hong Kong, and he did really well. Yes, it's Jameson Gong. Okay, cool. Oh yeah. uh, wait, that, that he was the host of the show. I don't know if you're talking about him, but uh, there's uh, another bald guy. Um, he was a uh, he was I think he was uh, Chinese. Yeah. Um, and he was okay, he was one of the finalists. Yes, it was. Descriptors for people, bald, bald Chinese guy. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, I yeah, good luck, man. Oh, thank hope, you. Hope it goes well. Um, so you've been doing it for like four years now. Four years. And how how did you? I think I've asked you this before, but how did you get into it? Uh, it's just like um, well, one is definitely um, I've been saying it for a long time before then before. Uh, right. Four years ago, which was before 2013, I've always loved comedy, and I was like just lying to myself, like, "Yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it." You know, like a years past, years past. You know, like it's um, I got, it got okay. to a point. So, so I think it's an interesting question, like, what makes you do it? But what I was thinking of before was, is what keeps you doing it the same thing that made you start it, or is it something else? It's definitely always be like what made what made me start it because, um, like. The scariest thing about doing comedy is like keeping consistent, you yeah. know. Okay, and you ask yourself like, do you just want to do this for fun, or do you actually want to do this for fun and actually want to show your perspectives of of stuff of a uh, pretty much like you know what do you think about the world, what do you think about people, what do you think about cultures? All oh, that's what all comedy is about. It's all perspective, and I want to express my perspective on things and. Um, and making people laugh about it, but also making them think about it, and and I think that's the the main drive for me. Well, most comedians, well, I wouldn't say most, everyone, there's all different styles, but that's kind of what comedy is, and right. what what makes us laugh, right? right? Is it makes you think, or it makes yeah. you stop and mm. and pause? Is that what you say your your favorite kind of? comedy style is something that stops and makes you think more than more yeah than anything. exactly some makes you think like in some relevancy has always been a key thing in my comedy because like I like to see what people think of something that's been talked about or like it's already well known now I mean like there's some limitations of relevancy obviously like Trump Donald Trump alone is already a, <laughs> a joke so like, we're going. isn't that messed up like mm-hmm. like uh, it's actually hard for comedy mm-hmm. He's gone like full. Usually politicians, you know, you make fun of him, make fun of him, but he's like, he's so full blown that it's hard to make fun of him because 
like he's the punchline before you get to the punchline. Right. You say Don, like he's the setup. Donald right. Trump. Right. Dot dot dot. Mm. There's already laughter. Mm. So how do you like? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the thing, you know. Of course, like there's a, when there's a will, there's a way. Like um, but when it comes to political jokes, especially with Trump's already joked himself, like you've already got the big from special comedians even on talk shows you have John Stewart and Stephen Colbert already making fun of him and they their material is very very unique and that stuff like cannot be like written in a week and performed like, uh, in a week that's pretty much it's like a lot of thought in, is into it and also like the the, the professional um, experience before that it's like right, right. it's like it's basically like when it's a, when it's a, like a, like you said, when it's a punchline itself, you gotta really think about how are you gonna deliver this punchline that nobody will not not see. When the, the setup punchline. is a punchline, exactly. you really gotta think about the punchline. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, so moving to kind of talking about, I want to talk about Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, I really appreciate your your experience as a comedian, but also you were a film student, right? I was uh, I went to film school for my bachelor's in Australia, okay. and um, uh, I have uh, that's one of my goals in life also to be become a filmmaker. I've I've already made uh, films and stuff, but they're not as, they're not big, they're right. not well known. But like, uh, but you're a film reviewer, probably first and foremost. Well, I'm like, definitely a film fanatic and a reviewer. Film so, fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> so part of the reason I wanted to talk to you was. You know, first because you were going on your comedy uh, mm. tour, so I thought it was a good time to yeah. chat with you and say good luck. Mm. But also because you put out all of these lists all the time, <laughs> your top ten movies right. or top ten yeah. Christopher Nolan movies or <laughs> top ten Christopher Nolan movies I've rewatched this summer. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so like, uh, what makes you? I mean, I guess we can talk about what what you're interested in film and stuff like that. But I, a little bit, what's what interests you to make those lists, or what interests you to think about film and to put your thoughts out there? Well, it's um, everyone like always wants to wants to express something, especially with social media nowadays. And um, in my perspective, or in my view, like when I watch a film, uh, good or bad, like there's always that one thing that I just like. I saw these films and I think and I'm feeling something and I'm thinking about what I just saw and I would all it's also like I'm in I'm kind of like indirectly like um, uh, raising awareness for these films you know it's pretty much like free marketing on yeah. on, on uh, social media you know especially if it's like a cult classic or right. something. exactly it's like I mean like word of mouth always always uh, will be the key to uh, uh, the main key to success of a film it's like uh, like for example like uh, when you think about um, uh, films like, uh, let's see, let's talk about um, like those Taken movies with Liam Neeson, for example. Like the first Taken movie was like a, it's called a sleeper hit. Like people were yeah. not did not see that coming. Like Liam Neeson who usually plays like historical roles, and like um, he has this stature. Like you just think of him as like a like a wise man who would never pick up a gun and just kick ass. Right. And John Wick was kind of a sleeper hit. Yeah, John Wick exactly. It's just because like those films like uh, succeeded because of, of the word of mouth, and the right. word of mouth is always going to be like people saw those films and then they, and then they came home or they they put it like uh, put it posted on Facebook or they just tell their friends, yo, I just saw like Taken man. Like like Liam Neeson was like 
badass. Like, you right. know, and people are like, what, really? Liam Neeson, Oscar Schindler, just like, yeah. like killing a bunch of like Albanian <laughs> kidnappers. So those movies like, used to be cult classics because they would only kind of catch on after they were like released on video or something like that. No, 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 no. Like, those are not cult classics. Uh, those are just like, um, like, uh, unexpected sleeper hits you know like a cult classic would be no I'm saying they used to be I mean I know they're different mm. but sim- similar idea where it's like word of mouth is really what right exactly it, right? Yeah. sleeper hit I guess is like the marketing wasn't really there people weren't aware of the hype wasn't there yeah whether it was yeah, because the, the budget couldn't afford to die right, you know right. yeah. or people didn't catch on to the hype and then right. and then the word of mouth spread mm. it mm. so um so yeah, when you when you're making these lists or when you're excited for a new film coming up, how much of it do you do you find you're bringing to it as a as a previous film student, mm-hmm. and how much of it do you are you just an audience member? How much of it you like? What do you, what do you bring to a film when you're when you're reviewing it? You mean like uh, when um, when I watch a film, like uh, what like uh, what do I think when I'm watching it? Yeah, like is there a certain lens that you think you you're viewing it through? Oh, I definitely view it as both a, a filmmaker and a film fan and a film lover. And um, like uh, let's like for example like uh, like Dunkirk this year, directed by Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite filmmakers yeah. of all time. And uh, like uh, that and that film is actually like not like my favorite. favorite favorite film of the year we'll be talking about Blade Runner 2049 later because that is my favorite film of the year now Dunkirk it's a it's a really really uh, unique film uh, in a film uh, for a filmmaker because there's it takes all the boxes of how Mm -hmm. to actually um, engage the audience with images and that's what Christopher Nolan did he pretty much made a silent film like it's like this limited dialogue right yeah it's it's basically with sound and and visuals and he uh uh, laid it out in a way for the audience to actually like really have their eyes glued to, to the screen because it's a war film and mm-hmm. it's like um, you see like like you know a bunch of like like the planes just like flying around and like uh, just shooting each other like ships blowing up yes like that it is a war film but to me it's not just a war film it's it's more of a suspense thriller because you're actually on the edge of your seat watching that film every Every shot, every frame of those shots are are put together specifically at at, at a certain moment of the of the in the time length of it. So basically, you're watching this scene. You, all the information is registered. You had okay. I get it. I get this. Okay. All right. Then let's move on to the next mm-hmm. scene, which will all uh, connect well. And, mm-hmm. stuff. and Chris Nolan puts his trademark. It's, it's very present tense. Right. And that there's no one explaining what's happening, mm. what's going to happen, mm. like what the planet. You know, it's not a typical movie where it's like let's set this up. It's like there's a little bit of that with Kenneth Branagh's character, mm. but it's really pretty much like you're watching a soldier in it and mm. their moment-to-moment decisions of how they're going to survive. Mm. And so much of it is about survival. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, like, Christopher Nolan likes to keep it, like, uh, show, don't tell. And also, yeah, yeah like, very much so. And, and, like, you know, he avoids that uh, cliche in uh, other films that that, that probably su- like, uh, succeeded or uh, did or failed uh, critically or financially. Like, uh, those, the, the kind of films where they put on, like, like a little title card saying two hours later or two hours before. I right, mean, right. it's just like that's that's that's, sloppy. Just, that's just sloppy and uh, and and lazy. You know, yeah, yeah. Nolan he 
puts the right information in the fray. He'll be yeah. like, he'll be like thinking, okay, like I'll put this guy right here, and I'll I'll have the shot like uh, framed in a way where the audience is like, okay, I'm gonna focus on this guy, yeah. and then like this guy is gonna uh, gonna gonna uh, be key to like the, the next scene, which will be probably 20 minutes later. Right, and that's and that was very key with Killian Murphy's character. Mm. The, the soldier that was um, uh, uh, suffering from uh, PTSD because mm. like uh, first like you just see him when you first see him in the film he's like just laying alone uh, sitting alone on a, on a ship that's been uh, like attacked and about to sink and stuff and he's suffering with PTSD and stuff and uh, his like um, and then later you discover that he's actually a uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what do you call it like um an authoritative uh, soldier of his group or something and he and he uh like uh, he says um he like what was it this is where this is where you see like a character change like he was like this very brave man saying saying like look you know like don't worry like uh he's saying to the the three main characters uh, played by um Harry Styles and uh, and the other the other guy like uh, one of them, the one that looks like a young Christian Bale I think uh he's like saying like don't worry like uh the uh, the people will rescue you like uh the forces will rescue you and then later you discover that his 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 ship was attacked and then he's pretty much become like scared. Yeah. So Wait, are you talking about is it the same character that killed the little boy? Yes, that, yeah. yes, yes. That was so messed up. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> that, was, that was yeah, a tough part of the movie. Mm. Uh it's funny that you say Because uh, when you first were talking about these are your favorite two movies of the summer they're very visual mm-hmm. but then you start talking about how it's show don't tell and I think that's what Blade Runner 2049 did so well mm-hmm. um, we'll get into talking about it but yeah I think those two common commonalities and there's a lot more mm-hmm. but it's kind of the type of movie that critically is getting a lot more responses hopefully mm-hmm. we see more of that because it's uh, it's a little bit more exciting than some of the Hollywood popcorn stuff we've been getting right um so yeah, getting into Blade Runner. Before we get into twenty forty nine, what are, when was the last time you saw the original? Uh, I saw the original about a month ago. So you rewatched it to I get. It. To well, get I, it's it's gonna it's a film. Is it I, one of your favorites? Has you seen it oh, a lot? Definitely, I think I definitely watch watch it like at least uh, well once or twice a year. It's um I think it's because it just is like I watch these type of films to remind me of my goals of wanting to be a filmmaker. Right. It's just pretty much like. What are your, some of your favorite parts or favorite shots or favorite? Well, uh, my favorite shot in um, the first Blade Runner is easily the the shot where um, Har- Har- uh, Harrison Ford uh, in the beginning of the film when he gets into the the, the police spinner and you and it just pretty much just opens this world to the audience. Like uh, if I was an audience member at that time when it came out, that would have been a wow factor for me. Right. Like I'm seeing like. LA, Los Angeles in the future and and here and uh, it's like this visual world here. Right. It's just pretty much like I'm already captivated. Uh, my eyes are glued to the screen. Yeah. I'm like welcome in this world. It's now. so rare that you get a new vision into something that just becomes it becomes like uh, archetype, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, people say Bangkok's a lot like a, a Blade Runner futurist, you know, having kind of slums next to giant screens. Like, what well, a world uh, is pretty much inspired by yeah. uh, Japica, Asian, uh, like the Asian um, uh, cities and stuff. Right, like very cyberpunk. Very cyberpunk. And I was, exactly. I was kind of reading up, listening up a bit more about this. Very much kind of about uh, what they feared in the early '80s that like Asian influence would 
would right. come and, and uh, the cultural hegemony of, of the Western influence would be threatened by you know Japanese and in, in, uh, industry and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, like it, like in the like I said, like um, with the, it being a, like my favorite shot. It's not just really cool. It's also it it uh, uh, what do you call it? Expresses the information that was uh, that was from the script, and also how Ridley Scott, the director, is trying to say to the audience about the the coming um, the coming force of commercialism. You see, yeah. You see all those. Those billboards, those electronic billboards of Coca-Cola and right. and well, the, um, it's in the Atari. It's in the the theme so much. Mm. So everything's done for money or ownership, right. and people are always saying like, uh, like you you think I can afford a real snake or right. like, mm. do you like our owl? Right. Like it looks expensive, like mm. very. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's actually my favorite scene. Right. It's probably the owl mm. soaring through that mm. door, but also just like. Uh, uh, what's her name? Rachel, uh, yes. welcoming Deckard into the Tyrol Corporation, and just mm. that office and right, right. the test he does on her. What's it called? The com. Vo- oh, the void com. Void com. And uh, her smoking during that, and right. just that whole ten-minute thing is, is is probably the best visual for me. And then, of course, if if I had to tell people to only watch five minutes of the movie mm. it'd probably be the right. tears and rain speech at the end of course I mean like uh, this uh, this was uh, one of the the first films to combine genres and stuff it was a science fiction uh, noir film mm-hmm. you know like the scene you're talking about with when uh, Deckard meets Rachel the first time that is that is one of the 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 elements of what a noir, like a noir films have you have the detective you have yeah. the, the mysterious a, a woman in a really like uh, really um, uh, what do you call it uh, dark o- dark ominous yeah. setting well the music the, the the score just completely underlines it too that gives it that noir feel with right. the kind of futuristic right. synth exactly yeah exactly yeah I really love that that part but the tears and rain speech at the end I had to rewatch a few times because right. I finally I was like oh because when I was rewatching the movie it took me a couple sittings to get through it right. and I was like not really feeling like it was cohesive to me mm-hmm. until I I finally finished it and watched that part because I was like and then I, I understood the whole movie I, I right. was like okay this is about these replicants that want to live and they're talking about you'll you have no idea what I've seen I've seen right Starships burn off Orion or right. you know, all these things. I think, and part of that speech apparently was, was um, it was improvised, ad libbed. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was uh, Rutger Hauer himself uh, put uh, most of his uh, input into that speech. That's really cool. Because it made the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's of course, what, what's your view on is Deckard a replicant or not? Um, I, <laughs> I, I think uh, Deckard is a replicant. Okay. Uh, and. Um, uh, the reason I think that's because um, I think that's what the film is trying to trying to say. Like uh, the, both films, uh, the original, uh, uh, the first Blade Runner and twenty forty nine. It's uh, it's um, it just conveys like that 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 feeling of doubt that you're thinking, okay, is he a replicant or not? But you just gotta watch watch the film, the final cut, by the way, the yeah, original yeah. final cut. Uh, you will just think think that um, 
De- Decker is a replicant or not. Well, that's the feeling that you, you should be thinking. Right, it's purposely right, ambiguous. Exactly. It's, yeah, purposely ambiguous because the first like, uh, Blade Runner has inspired many filmmakers uh, to, to do the type of films they make. Like, they can, Blade Runner is pretty much like a blueprint. The spinning uh, top at the end of Inception. Exactly, Inception, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like Christopher Nolan, like the show Don't Tell Guy. So basically, he just leaves the audience to think of it for itself. That's what he wanted to do. Like, what's the, what's the point of... Of, of, uh, of showing what happens mm. it's this like okay like yes okay like every film should have a setup and payoff well like if the payoff gives that feeling of like what like uh, giving you doubts or like um, uh, making you skeptical or something that's what uh, um, those, these films are about right. now obviously Blade Runner well, like, uh, doesn't ha- didn't have the same uh, commercial success as Inception but the, the thing with Blade Runner, the, the first it Blade Runner... It didn't have Leo. <laughs> well, 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 Harrison Ford was a big star that time, you know? Like, he was yeah, already yeah. Indiana Jones and uh, Han Solo before then. So he's basically, like, on the rise of his, of his star power. Right. The thing with the first Blade Runner is... It didn't have... It was all, sti- <laughs> it was all style, no substance. And, right. and I'm saying no substance, in, in, uh, not because it didn't have substance. It had substance, but it didn't express... Uh, and convey the message of that sub- substance enough for the mm-hmm. audience to really understand. Mm-hmm. And this well, is one thing uh, going back and researching it a bit. People say about it, it, it's amazing that it's stuck out in people's heads so much without having a standout scene. Right. Like we're talking about our favorite scenes in the movie. Right. Mine was an owl going across a room. You know, right. there was no chase scene right. or. You know, spectacular. Mm. You know, maybe the LAPD building or something, but right. there wasn't like a a climax or or a set piece that was really, other than the entire set direction itself, mm. or, or um, the entire art direction itself, mm. was a, the standout piece. Well, to me, like uh, in a filmmaker's view, like uh, watching the first Blade Runner, uh, the first uh, uh, the first cut, not the final cut, the one that was uh, shown in, mm. in, in theaters. Um, when I first saw it. It was like it was like being in a in a, in a museum, an art museum, for two hours, and I'm and I'm, and every painting I'm seeing, I'm I'm really uh, uh, focused on it. It's like think of like the, the all the paintings in the museum being the shots from the film, and that's what every shot was a painting, and I'm admiring it, but. I'm not feeling of what the story is. Like uh, I know what the story is about, but I'm not really feeling of what that story is trying to uh, trying to say. And I say this because you have Decker, the the hero of the in 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 screenwriting um, uh, protagonist. Yeah, of course he's a protagonist, and he has to, he has his goal. He has to hunt these replicants down and kill them. Now there's no there's no like you know. Um, connection with him and the, and the replicants like mm-hmm. meaning a connection like it's like it's a chase movie yeah and every chase always has the hero and the villain and there was no like uh, connection with it when you see when you see like a chase between a uh, between two characters and the, the protagonist and the antagonist like let's let's say the, the most simple one the fugitive another Harrison Ford film like you have, you have your, your protagonist Harrison Ford he has to prove his innocence that he did not kill his wife and you have the antagonist Tommy Lee Jones the cop that has to uh, uh, find him and arrest him. Now, it's it's a cat and mouse game, but like it's uh, there's no there's there's scenes where you know like like uh, Harrison Ford is like like escaping and he, you know like they 
and uh, when he's escaping, they always cut to Tommy Lee Jones' reaction of, of, of how he escapes. That's how the, like, how the audience will feel something and be like, oh man, like, you know, Harrison Ford just nearly got caught, you know, and Tommy Lee Jones is like, oh man, you know, like, uh, we were so close, you know, well, back to the drawing board, we gotta, we gotta go find him, we gotta solve the case, you know, that, yeah. that, but like, it's like, it's like, it's visual, it's just like, you see, you, you see all the shots to make you feel what the chase is. Now with, with uh, original Blade Runner, there's no scenes like that, it's like, uh, the scenes are pretty much, um, like uh, all over the place, yeah. you know. You have like, you, yeah, you see Rutger Hauer going when, into in the one chase scene. He like shoots her in the crowded marketplace, and she falls through glass, and mm. it just kind of turns into like slow motion. Like you watch it happen, but right. you don't really understand the perspective of what's good. What do the bystanders feel? What does Zachary yeah. feel? Yeah, it's well, kind even, of all yeah. dark yeah. and rainy. Exactly, and even like you know, like the, like when when uh, when Roy Batty's character, uh, Roy Batty, uh, Rutger Howard's character, finds out that he was killed, he just he just finds out. It's just dialogue. It was just like oh, it's like yeah, it, it, this just happened. Like we didn't cut to like Roy Batty like in the same street like hiding and you just saw what happened right, saw what right. happened like it needs to have that connection between the the hero and the villain and stuff so that's what the first Blade Runner was missing so then how do you feel like it carried forward for the for the the sequel now the sequel is what uh, made up for what was missing because you're at the moment that the first uh, scene is uh, is shown you already know what you're watching. You already, already. This is a, this is like a science fiction mm-hmm. story. You see the spinner flying in. Of course, you see like the title cards before that. You know, explaining this yeah. thing, uh, what replicants are, blah blah blah. Which and, I think was good because it. I mean, first of all, it's crazy that it's a sequel. How many years later? Right. right? Like, exactly. It's, it's, but yeah, exactly. And but yeah, you already know what Ryan Gosling's character is. Yeah, and then you see all the other police guys yelling skin job at him. And exactly, stuff like that. exactly. It's like uh, you already know what the, what the story is about. You have, you have the main character, he's a Blade Runner. He goes out to find these replicants and kill them. You already know what the character is. You already know what his job is. And then after all that happens, you go, to, you go into his, uh, his, his home, you know, like his personal life. And stuff, and all well, obviously, like it's uh, it's already shown that he's a replicant himself. This is how the stories has right. has, has um, pretty much like the tables have turned. You know, like right. you have a replicant hunting other replicants. You already you already have a a theme right there. Right. It's pretty much like you know, like uh, there's a division between yeah. uh, like like a uh, replicants. Right, and so uh, I didn't say in the beginning and tell you, but obviously this is full spoiler. It's full spoiler. Sorry, sorry so, guys. So you no. seen, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it now. So uh, I'll put a little disclaimer in the beginning. So uh, the um, the interesting twist that you assume it is is like okay, so the first movie is all Deckard going after replicants, and maybe he's a replicant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but then this whole, you're like, okay, so this sequel is about a replicant for sure going after other replicants, and the twist that you come through halfway is, oh, maybe he's not a replicant, or maybe he's the first born replicant or something like that. Hmm. And then that's kind of the, exactly. again, you have another twist. So I really like how that's set up in the very beginning. Exactly. You're like, oh, you kind of feel like you have your first twist from the beginning because he is right. a replicant right exactly and then 
after he uh, kills the, the first replicant, uh, played by Dave Bautista, Sapper, uh, more information is thrown in there. You have, you have him uh, uncovering that chest with uh, the remains of, um, of Rachel. Spoiler alert again, you know, like of, mm-hmm. of Rachel Deckard's uh, love and stuff. And Did you watch the three short films online? Yes, I did, yes. They're really good, huh? Yeah, very good. It really I, came, the, uh, the, what's it called? The, uh, I wish I had his name on the top of my head, but Jared the animator. Leto. No, the animator for the the Blackout short. Oh, right, yes, yes, yes. Amazing. Right, exactly. So well done. I was hearing other people say, like, we need a right. a full-length Blade Runner movie right. in that universe, that exactly. animated universe. So, yeah, so at that point, like, when he uncovers the chest, that's where it's done visually. He uncovers the chest, he opens the chest, and that's it's pretty much like opening Pandora's box, mm-hmm. you know, like, something's going to happen, and he has a goal now. He, uh, he's given the goal. He's ordered by his, uh, by his chief, played by Robin, uh, Robin Wright, like, okay, go find, find, find out what's going on, you know? There's the goal. And then it, like, uh, you're following him. Now, this Blade Runner 249 is a very patient film. Mm. And it's patient because, like, that's what um, Denny Villeneuve is trying is trying to um, respect with the first one, right? Because this film easily could have been like another sci-fi action blockbuster that you see every every summer. Like, was trying to match the tone, mm. the score, the pacing, mm. the themes in right. many ways, and then exactly. he's trying to perfect them and so, exactly. and then kind of retcon them, right? Exactly, trying to improve them retroactively, mm. even for the first film. Right. It makes some parts of the first film better, right? Exactly. But like, uh, I think that he is a perfect director to do that because um, if you if you think of his previous uh, the films before. Uh, prisoners and Sicario. You right. know, the main character has a goal and is obsessed with that goal. Yeah, and Arrival. And Arrival yeah. too, exactly. Arrival is not like a, it's not a really like a, like a, like a thriller. You know, like a, it's like a, no, sorry, it's not um, what do you call it? A thriller with someone that's obsessed too much. You okay. know, like it does have a obsession in there, but it's not as obvious like Sicario and Prisoners. Okay. And so basically, like uh, you have that Diddy Villeneuve element in there. So Ryan Gosling has to go find out what is going on. Like a, what's like a, what's all like why is Rachel uh, uh, buried in that chest and here's the kick here's uh, another piece of information replicants can uh, can have kids mm-hmm. can uh, can reproduce and that's where like uh, you know the the key dialogue comes in like when like, uh, when this type of information information comes out it's gonna basically break the whole uh, truce or something that's going on like uh, the right. barriers between humans and and replicants. So Wright writes. Well, first, Robin Wright is so awesome in this right, movie. Exactly. She's in the middle of her right, com- exactly. comeback. Like always, lay lay out the stakes of it. The well, stakes of the plot. Her line says, uh, "Am I the only one that sees this? This uh, like oh, shit? What is it? <laughs> she wrote down some of these lines. But yeah, she's she's the only one that says sees like how big of an issue this right. is, exactly. and she's she's like panicking about it." Mother one that sees the the sun setting or something like that. Right. I don't know. Um, but what I really want, I think the best scene she's in, but even better, uh, I wrote her name, the girl that plays love, Sylvia. Ho- Sylvia Hoax. Hoax. Yeah. Hoax. I don't know. Hoax, yeah. European pronunciation. She's awesome. Yeah, she's movie. great. Okay. And uh, the line where she's like talking to her, to Lieutenant Josie. And she's like, you, you tiny thing, you can't hold back the, 
you can't hold back the tide with with a broom you know right. like she's saying that, that like that and then she crushes the glass in right. her hand mm. that part is just so uh, so powerful mm. and she like emits it's really some of the only real emotion that that character emits during yeah, the thing exactly. and it's so much so much power and more than right. more than that individual she's like represent representing her kind right exactly and 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 everything that wallace is kind of doing in the movie mm. um what do you what do you think about joy see see um the, like uh, that's one of the the subplots that really conveys the message of the film it's uh, basically um we are we uh we are pretty much um uh, what do you call it uh, um, grown into technology now mm-hmm. you know like we've been uh, fused fused with it mm-hmm. you know like we have been so dependent on technology that we have like pretty much like are a part of it now and that's what um, that character's like uh, a character's subplot is about is that is that even replicants it's uh, themselves are using these these um uh, these machines, machines right. using machines, humans using machines. It's right. like, it just conveys that uh, we are now living in a world where we are so dependent on machines. Right. Uh, because like in always human nature, we are lonely. You know, like uh, we are well, wanting something. It's also about like what's real. It's been pro. If it's been programmed, is it real? Right. And yeah, it's like a quote unquote fake machine. Right. Uh, interacting with another layer of fake right. under that because right. she's not physical right. and then you know maybe she's a little bit more real because she can go outside the room now right. but you know what what is real and then and then I love that relationship when it comes full circle and he's on the bridge at the end and right. it's like was it real if there's others out there that exactly. are similar no exactly and you feel that in real life with real relationships sometimes you're like oh they they all are familiar we're all just programmed to be a certain way or something well that's the thing it's like um humans cannot take the truth you know like Mm -hmm. uh, they always want moments in life they just want to enjoy the moment and sometimes they they're too proud to accept like yeah like you know like um this this thing this, this bad thing happens but like i always had that feeling that it was going to happen but i just cannot admit to myself that I could have avoided it, you know? Like, right. I just think, no, like, this is bullshit and all that. It's, um, that's the thing that we do with machines, right? Like, we're so dependent on them, and then when uh, we abuse it, and we, we abuse it, like, uh, we pretty much, like, uh, become cowards. We just run away, we just run away, and just keep and blame the machine. We just, like, blame the company that made that machine. We're like, oh, it's not, this doesn't work, it's not giving me what I want. It's right. like, humans always want something, and like, if they pay for it, or they're giving it, whatever it is. We always like, abuse that that um, that privilege, that gift, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that's what the film is really about. It's mm-hmm. like like uh, what it is to be human, but in both positives and negatives. Because um, you have the main character who's not, who's not who's not a like a full human, but he is the most human character in the in the movie because mm-hmm. he like is curious, you know. Right. And humans are always curious about things, but his curiosity is what. Like um, he figure, what, he figures it out first. He figures it out. Yes, yeah. he's he wants to have a purpose. He wants to serve his purpose, and but that's the thing. When it comes to that point, where he realizes that 
that uh, that memory he has of uh, being in the in the fa- in the factory as a kid, and he hid the the wooden horse. You know that was That's, that was one of my favorite right. parts of the movie. It, it served a small purpose, right. like right. it was a it was a, a kind of a, a trick right. they played, right. but it worked so well for me. I think as a story, uh, as him finding it again, it was really cool. It was really special. Right. This receipt printer is going off. Yeah, machine. Right? <laughs> no, it's like that's the thing, you know. Like uh, that's where you relate to the character. He's actually upset about something. He's upset. It's an emotion. He, he can, he's trying to like find, figure out something, and he actually feels emotional about right, it because, right. like, like in this job, they shouldn't be emotional, right? I mean, well, like, the most emotional that he gets is when he finds out it's a real memory because yes. he thinks it's his. Yes, exactly. She, she admits that truth, right? She, the doctor when he yes. goes finds her, she goes, "It's real." Yeah. She doesn't say it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> but because uh, otherwise we would have found out. Exactly. Too, too but like that's the thing, right? It's just like uh, he's yeah. a Blade Runner. He's a Blade Runner. He's told what to do, right? Like because he's a, he's a replicant. That uh, he's one of the new replicants that like that obeys his authority. And there's people uh, in the world now who have these jobs, right? You have soldiers, you have policemen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve the law, blah blah blah. You know, and like, and always the number one rule: never let emotion be in the way of of your job. Because, right. Because you know, like when emotions comes in, like uh, shit, shit will will fall. You know. Right. But that's we're human. We're only human, right? You know, like uh, that's what re- it reminds us that we're human. We have an emotion. It means that we're human. We're not cold beings, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, his like, uh, like uh, his character is trying to convey. That yeah, he's more human than human. He's more human than human. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the whole know, theme of the movie. Exactly. And um, and then the moment when he meets Deckard, you know, you right. have of course it's an iconic moment. Now you have yeah, like yeah, yeah. you have the, the, the new meets the, the old. That's where he's gonna. He My favorite part of the whole meeting, right. I mean the Vegas shootout right. and stuff, right. was super cool. But right. favorite part of the whole meeting is when he looks at the dog and goes, right. "Is he real?" Right. And he goes, "I don't know. Ask him." <laughs> it's like that's Deckard's opinion on what is real and what isn't. Right. And it's especially funny because everyone's been asking for almost 40 years now is Deckard a replicant like I don't know is he isn't he and, right. and it's almost like mm. you imagine that's Harrison Ford's mm. probably opinion you know if you right. went up exactly. and asked Harrison it's, Ford is Deckard a exactly. replicant he'd probably say I don't know ask him well that's that's that's, that's where great screenwriting comes in the, the screenwriter like uh, he writes good subtext yeah, yeah, he yeah. doesn't like just lay it out there yeah, like yeah, yeah. obviously like yeah he's he's, yeah, he's a replicant he's a robot whatever mm. like you know like that scene where it's pretty much like as an audience member you're thinking like okay he's gonna go meet his dad right he's gonna meet the the person that, right. that uh, made him created right. him right and it's but so it doesn't it's so good that you think you know that he thinks this whole time like oh my god this is my daddy that moment could have been easily ruined it's like like you know who I am it's like yeah. it's like it could be like Garrison Ford can say I don't know or like yeah I do whatever it's just right. like Why'd you, it could have been like a whole sap, soppy, yeah. soppy part where he goes, like, why'd you it. leave me, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he like could have been like, what? No. You think I'm your dad? He's like, yeah. yeah. He's like, no, no, no. not. No, <laughs> no, exactly. Like, good screen editing comes in with good subtext, like right. good dialogue. You right. don't just tell the audience what it is. You just, like, let the audience think, okay, this is what he's saying, and I'm thinking that's what he's saying. Right, like right. That. So... And that's where, like, the the, the payoff of the, of the story is about, that... Where um, Officer Officer K, played by, played by Ryan Gosling, like when he finally sees that Joy, um, 
uh, what do you call it, a hologram, right. you know, and she, he sees that he's been a... Um, Which a apparently victim. all of those ads were also played by the same actress. Yes. yes. I didn't realize that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, he, uh, he finally realizes he's a victim of the, the system, you know, he's a, he's a victim of uh, what that world is now. It's all big commercialism and technology you know and like uh, he was like, uh, he's a victim because he felt emo- like, uh, he felt emotion but of course humans are like, victims of a lot of things you know like, uh, these victims have like uh, all around the world you know there's so much bad shit going around that it's you know it's the cause of um, other humans right so basically like look it's another machine manipulating another machine mm-hmm. so but then but the machine feels human because he's a, has an emotional reaction yeah. and then where he that's where he, that's to find a moment I'm gonna it's like a, like a serve my goal, but it, but it, but like at a different agenda. My agenda is to pretty much save Deckard, to pretty much like show him that he has a daughter, you know, and right. like and like and that's where like I think the ending is just pure beauty, like yeah. where Deckard asks him like, you know, like why do you care, and he just says in one piece of dialogue, all the best memories are hers. It's just, he's, it's, he's pretty much saying, like, because of her, I... Well, that's so why he gave up the horse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's pretty much saying, that's that the subtext is, like, like, I, I, I enjoyed my, my life because of her, you wow. know? Yeah, like yeah. that, I've, I, you know... So, so, I agree with you, that was a beautiful ending. What do you think about the little detail of how she was creating a little memory with snow? Mm. Like Deckard, or Kay dies on the stairs outside right. on the snow. Right. Deckard walks in to say hi to her. She turns around. She's just doing a little bit of snow mm. memory there. Mm. I mean, it's probably just playful. What if? Mm. Uh, but you know, do you think there's more to that? Well, it's it's pretty ambiguous, right? Yeah. So like uh, that's the but. Um, that's the thing you're thinking about these things but you're already but you're yeah. feeling that moment of the movie where Deckard is gonna meet his daughter to me it's like by the time I've gone through a few twists mm. and then I thought like whoa is this a final twist in the movie to tell me the entire movie was a memory right, <laughs> right <laughs> like, exactly so, the entire thing was a memory that no, Deckard's memory is just right. yeah I don't know no I mean it's it's, it's, it's up to you but um, okay my opinion I don't think it's a memory because the last shot is Harrison Ford right because if it was a memory, it would be the from the perspective of oh, Deckard's memory. No, not Deckard's she, memory. It would be Officer K's memory. Right. You know, it it, it would cut to Officer K. Well, unless unless K snow. was an implant. Yes, exactly. Like, like uh, you know, who knows, right? But like, um, but it's about the shot. It's always that final shot. That's yeah. where you know, like, uh, well, sorry, that's where you might think this is the answer. This is the right. the answer. I think I think it's it was all real because it's. Uh, it cuts with Decker, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what was your biggest takeaway? You mean uh, what I I did not enjoy about it? You mean no, or oh, biggest takeaway? Sorry, takeaway like uh, what did you leave the movie feeling? Oh, I I felt was there like, a shot that lingered the most? Oh, a line easily, of dialogue. Easily uh, my character. my favorite my favorite shot of the film is uh, where um, Officer K is pretty much walking into the 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 lion's den you call it or like walking to the the belly of the beast where he's in Vegas and there's that one shot and it's all orange and, and yeah. smoke and he's just walking yeah you know? You're and then they, and then him. the bees come up yes exactly what was that about was that just Deckard's bees I think, for honey I th- uh, yeah exactly I think okay. I think it was Deckard's uh, it's just such a food cool, supply I think so. it's just such a cool uh, 
idea where it's like in in an infrared it's just a weird you like right. buzz. it's a plot device it's a plot yeah, device yeah, yeah. it's for the character to like touch the he's pretty much the character yeah. touching an insect for the first time and he's not feeling it you know right that's the thing so the one plot device i didn't get was the hooker hired by or the prostitute hired by jay sorry joy yeah. for their awesome weird hologram three-way love scene <laughs> why like then i guess the process is also working for wallace because she implants the tracking chip no no she wasn't working for wallace she was working for the the replican revolution oh so so she put the tracking chip into k's jacket so yeah that so, so, she, could... so they can uh, lead a uh so they can find find decker because they need decker but then but then love comes and finds Kay and Deckard. Oh that was uh that was from uh, another tra- I think it was another tracking device. Um uh like uh, I think oh, okay. yeah, I, I think so. I, I think so. Like yeah, yeah. So I have to watch the movie again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just fine, man. So, no, like it was uh, because yeah, the, the the general for me the general feeling was like it no, had No, the tracking device was Joy herself. Because Joy I thought they broke her antenna. No, no, no. I think um I think there was there was something and she, because uh, because before love uh, destroys the the pro- like uh, the system, she says something like, uh, "I hope you, you know, thank you for enjoying our our yeah. our product." And but also, no, she, yeah, because it shows that mm. they were monitoring his use of the product, and right. once he broke the antenna, she right. knew immediately, and then came looking right. for him. But then she only went to where right. the antenna was broken. Anyway, so that was I mean. that was my connect. <laughs> that was my confusion. Was like, who is the prostitute working for? <laughs> but um, yeah, my biggest my biggest takeaway was like. It was a movie with a bunch of twists mm. that I really enjoyed, mm. and they didn't spoon feed me. Mm. So what that made me feel was like, mm. there's as many twists as you want to perceive right. in this movie. You can dig deeper and feel like, well, that there's a twist and then a counter twist and then mm. a resolution twist, but then the whole movie was a bigger twist or something. You know? No, you that's can, what it is. That that's what the, it made up for what the first uh, the original Blade Runner was missing because the the first Blade Runner it, like it was it was called a sci-fi mystery noir, you know, right. and you didn't really feel any, any any much mystery in that. The mystery itself was just like, oh, what's what is going on with the. With uh, with uh, with these characters and what's the like, I don't, I'm not seeing the goal like and uh, the plot that well. This one is just easily done in in in, vi- in a visual standpoint, in a sound standpoint, in a, right. in, a, in, a, in a dialogue standpoint, everything. Like you you're, you know that you're watching a mystery and you want the, every piece of information is gonna be shown patiently, like that through the shots, through the frame, and that's what's the beauty of uh, Roger Deakin, the cinematographer. Right. Like he, ev- I think every shot has a purpose. It's, it, it's, this is one of the few movies I've seen, like uh, have like I've, I've seen like um, in the, in, this, in, um, in a long time. I haven't seen it in a long time where each shot has a purpose. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, especially yeah. Wallace's yeah. office with yeah. all the exactly. water and everything. It's really like, cool. When it comes to Roger Deakins' cinematography, like when there's a shot, there's always like um, the the stuff in the shot, the things in the shot, like you, it's like you have, okay, you're gonna follow the main character, but there's something there, there's something there, and you can see in the first opening scene of the movie, it's framed. You see like Ryan Gosling's character walking to the house. You see that tree. Mm-hmm. 
that tree is gonna have a have have, yeah, have a yeah, reason. Yeah. There's a reason why the tree is there because it's gonna it's gonna be in the next shot. Like he focuses on the tree. So that's even what, even the sound yeah. from him turning off and on the Wallace Corporation yeah. joy, yeah. like dun dun, yeah. you know, like later on, that sound comes, mm. and then the prostitute's like, oh, you you don't like real girls, like because you hear the sound from his pocket, you already understood before. Right. It's like yeah, there's so many cues that come mm. back and. All right, well, we could talk about this all, all night, but this hotel restaurant thing we're in is, is trying to kick us out. Okay, well, um, I can, oh, I'll just say this, like, uh, the endings. Are, yeah, like, what's, uh, your, what's the, your... The film, I, re- I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, so, like, uh, I apologize for spoiling it, for spoiling it, but, like, uh, <laughs> um, uh, for those who have seen it, like, I hope you share the same uh, belief or opinion of what I, like, uh, think about this film, because the... the what makes this film my favorite film of the year is just the, the message of it. It's just it just teaches. Uh, it taught me, and I hope it taught other people like the meaning of humanity, and to remind us that uh, to, in order to to stay human, we sh- we need to uh, value life. Value life, and um, you know, fix the the mistakes that we have made, and expect, uh, and those mistakes meaning like our our abuse of technology. Yeah. And we should um, well said. We should just like um, uh, have a connection with the technology we have, but not in, but not in a in a sense where we're gonna end up taking it for granted mm-hmm. like that. So well, and you know, let's help our let's let our technology help us be more human, not yeah. less human. Exactly. So that's so why I give it a and not not turn them into slaves. <laughs> well, I, I give it a be uh, nice to your Siri. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I give it a, a five stars. Cool. Um, and a two thumbs up, of course. <laughs> like, awesome, like in man. Perspective, so, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for talking to you about it. Good luck in Hong Kong. Thank you very much. And uh, you excited about any other movies coming up the rest of this year? I'm very excited for uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Okay. Uh, because it's written by Michael Green, who also wrote Blade Runner right. 2049. Okay, and I didn't know he that. wrote Logan this I year, I just too. knew, is, is Kenneth Branagh director? Kenneth Branagh is okay. directing it. And, um, I, like, I like his... I like his direction. I, I, I really like the first Thor he directed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that film and um, there's a December re- like a December release coming up. I really, oh, uh, is it December? Uh, it's November in America, but I think it'll be in uh, January in Thailand. It's a new Denzel Washington film called Roman J. Israel Esquire, where he plays a... Uh, uh, Denzel. A, yeah, he mm-hmm. plays, um, uh, what do you call it? An, an, I think he plays an autistic lawyer in the movie, and he plays um, a, a man who's served justice... Uh, uh, so much that he's he hasn't been uh, be, been given the the right gratitude and respect and stuff, and he pretty much like sells his soul to the devil to, you know, succeed. You know, and it's um, directed by Dan Gilroy, who directed Nightcrawler, which is definitely one of my favorite films of 2014. A movie about um, how far how far would you go for success, and that's what this film. Yeah. Is. So yeah. and it's Denzel Washington, of course. I'll definitely cool. watch anything with him. So. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to see it. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. I Thank appreciate you. it. And uh, oh, is the last thing, is there anything you want people to check out online of yours or follow you anywhere? Um, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't have a review page, and so maybe I, like uh, after a few more interviews, I might uh, start a review page or something. But um, for, for for my friends <laughs> uh, like, uh, on Facebook and stuff, like uh, please like share your thoughts on my list. Okay. Or my opinions of uh, of the films I watch. Your you movie know? lists, right? Yeah, I mean positive, negative. You know, like um, I'm open to discussion. 
All right, cool, man. <laughs> All right, thanks again, and yeah, good luck in Hong Kong. Thank you. All right, take care. Okay, cool. Coming at you from a balcony in Bangkok. This is Holding Up with Becky and Gary. So I'm Gary Yarbrough. And hi, I'm Becky O'Brien. And we're here to give you a bit of a breakdown of what our life's been like. And um, yeah, just kind of answer the question of our times. How are you holding up? So uh, kind of first episode background, I'm Gary. Uh, I am from the States and, uh, we live here in Bangkok and, um, I worked in food and beverage, uh, manufacturing and, uh, background of kind of my situation here was that my first day of quarantine was like my first day after I left my job, not quarantine related, but, uh, still kind of weird at the same time. So my perspective coming at all of this is, is from kind of uh, having been unemployed and a job seeker for the last few weeks in, in, this, in this time. And Becky? And me, I'm Irish, and I've been living in Bangkok for six years. We met over here. Um, I'm an international school teacher, so I'm currently teaching kindergarten. So that's been a pretty interesting experience. Yeah, you're you're doing the whole online teaching thing. Mm. Yeah. With, with three year olds, four year olds. Three. Three year olds. <laughs> so it's more like Zoom conferences with the parents. <laughs> Me trying to tell the parents to mute their mics. Yeah, it's been a pretty interesting um, experience. At first. We didn't know how long it was going to be, so it was very much... We just kept sending a video to the children. Just of, I would just send a video of me doing something at home. Cooking or making porridge and reading a story to them. And now it's developed a little bit more into me. Um, you got much more structure now. Yeah, much more structure. We... Um, you know, do a morning meeting every day. We send tasks and we meet one to one. So it's a lot different now. That's so crazy. I, I can't even think about doing that as a three. I'm trying to imagine how old I would be to where I would be able to kind of, like, learn from that properly. <laughs> I think today. Maybe sixth grade. I don't know. Today, one student. It was their first day actually signing up for the online teaching in all the weeks we've been off. And I, I could tell he was completely shocked to see me there. He kept pointing at the screen and saying, look, 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 it's Becky. <laughs> and I was thinking, yes, it's me. <laughs> like you, I don't know if we got any learning from the experience. Just the... We learned about teleconferencing. Yeah. <laughs> Technology is part of our curriculum so they're learning how to use zoom oh man um and uh yes as we said we're in bangkok so you're an international school teacher here in bangkok and we're uh i guess expats here living in bangkok and that's a bit of our background and we are living downtown in bangkok in a pretty dense area in a high-rise roof and um or, sorry, a high-rise condo 
and uh, on the roof. And, and so, it's kind of difficult during this um, coronavirus pandemic. Even though Bangkok's numbers, its, it's reported numbers, have been more or less low over the last eight weeks comparatively. Um, still, during social distancing, it's really hard to really avoid people um, when. Literally, we step outside our doorstep and our condo, and we're on the busiest street in in Bangkok, and uh, it's that's, tough. That's it's, the thing that's been really hard for me because I think I speak to so many people back in Ireland, and even though everyone's isolating and keeping their social distance, everybody I know can go on walks. The entire country is out walking their dogs and going on runs, and in Bangkok within two minutes of leaving my apartment or 20 seconds of leaving my apartment i see someone in the lift yeah so it's been really difficult to think i'm trying to stay inside as much as i can like stay within the apartment right there's i mean there's dozens of people on our floor and then hundreds of people that use our elevator and then the lobby you know it's really it's um you see people jogging on the street and Bangkok is a place where people do use masks, but it's start it's a bit it's a bit lazy. I mean I think maybe we can talk about mask use as a whole topic on itself sometime. But and its adoption and in different cultures. I think it's pretty interesting. But um it, it just on the topic of going outside in general, it's it's tough. It's a full it's a it's kind of like a whole thing you have to think about. And, and go throughout because as soon as we're out our front door we're in contact uh, potentially with people I what? mean there's custodians who clean our the floors the common floors of our um, the floor we're on every every day so you know as they're sweeping and mopping and stuff like that that they're potentially breathing it in that common air that isn't really ventilated well um, just in the hallways on on our on our flat so it's it's yeah little things like that that make it more difficult than yeah your family in ireland or where my brother is in in hawaii or he gets to go out and still go on little hikes and stuff i think mm-hmm. he said he got kicked out of a place i don't know <laughs> but yeah yeah so i feel tough. that in bangkok whenever i leave that apartment i'm thinking i'm trying to think anyone could be infected with covid19 so i'm trying to be as careful as i can and yeah it's a whole set of things i need to think about and um before we go on on i want to finish our introductions with the final member of our household which is chloe she's our 11 month old dachshund mini dachshund puppy and um she's a big reason we do have to go outside quite often yeah. <laughs> she's gone crazy since we started quarantine <laughs> she used to be so quiet and sleepy at home and never bark at home and now all of a sudden she's a terror <laughs> she's sleeping <laughs> next night. to us right now so maybe she won't make an appearance in episode one but i'm sure that she will at some time at some point while we're both recording this be barking or something so she wants us to play more she <laughs> hasn't seen a dog in a while and she's yeah had enough of it that's a big change she used to go to the dog park and play with other dogs a few times a week and now she's only got us to play with so it's sad for her but we try and entertain her so i guess i can go into um 
yeah, I want to talk about our apartment because uh, we we mentioned a little bit that we're in this condo downtown. But I think about what we're one thing that helps us cope is the sunsets. Mm. I think that's like a huge part of our lives, since and just in I've, general, the sky maybe. Since I've been inside, two major things have happened in regards to my feelings about my apartment. Is I've become so appreciative of the space in the apartment, and I've been become even more connected to nature through the sky. Mm. I've been normally I always want to get into the trees and walk in grass, but now I'm just constantly staring at the clouds, <laughs> like looking at them and looking at the sunset, and yeah, I feel really grateful for it. Yeah, we have a awesome balcony. We are yeah. very fortunate, and every day we know it, and we're very grateful for it. Um, and and it actually, because we're on the top floor, we don't have anyone above us, so we have a lot of huge view of the sky. Yeah. And I think you've said this a few times that like, the sky has become your access to nature. Mm-hmm. Your your your. And actually, not just the sky, but because we've got a like a good space outside. I've started like planting seeds mm. because I want to get even more of a connection to nature. And I, for the first time in my life, I feel I have the time to really look after a little garden and really like every day water it and look at it and really nurture it. Yeah, it's really exciting. So yeah. you, have, you have a couple of little sunflowers going. Yeah, and I'm watching them every day. <laughs> we'll get Intently. some herbs and vegetables going, hopefully. I've been trying to push for more functional things. <laughs> she, the first thing she planted was a sunflower. But that'll be happy. It will make us happy. <laughs> it will make me really happy. And I feel like being inside and being so isolated from the world, I've really started to think, to think about how could I become truly self-sufficient? I would love... I'm starting... I'm daydreaming about getting a compost bin where I can get my own soil grow my own vegetables and I even thought today <laughs> haven't told you yet we should get a chicken <laughs> get eggs <laughs> oh wow you waited till this moment so <laughs> I think that would be really cool if my cock just had one chicken what if he gets around. over the ledge you know, no. a chicken will I flutter down joking. I was only joking <laughs> flutter down these floors uh, I would be down to expand part of our balcony to have some organic growing box or something mm. chloe will eat all the vegetables though <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so you've been we've both been enjoying the sunsets we um our friendly neighbor gave us a table and two high chairs to sit out there and it's like oh, our it's own been a dream he's our been own amazing. little bar yeah very nice guy and um and originally this this podcast, I thought we would maybe film it or maybe record it outside in the sunsets every night or something. But uh, one, it's hard to commit to uh, always the same time. And two, it's uh, very noisy out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, less noisy than usual with traffic and stuff, but there's still lots of birds and um, I feel air, like air every, conditioners and hmm, all kinds of stuff. I feel like every day the, the sunset, the reason I'm so focused on it as well is every day the apartment is the exact same mm. but the sunset has been we've been having the best sunset since we've been inside and 
every day it's just like a masterpiece in the sky and I've just been watching it so intently and I feel like it's the only thing visually that's changing around. It definitely gives perspective and you're right when every day is almost Groundhog Day and you have a different sunset every day at least it's like oh okay it's we're not we're not repeating the same mundane actions in the same house in this every day in and out you know it um it's it's grounding it's it's cosmic in a way it realizes it makes you realize things are bigger than you and and this and time is and it's is fleeting and, and you know this will pass and the whole thing that with the coronavirus as well is that of course it's so damaging and so horrific for so many people but I think there's been a universal feeling that nature is finally getting the chance to repair mm-hmm. and to heal. And, you know, the pollution in Bangkok right. has majorly been reduced. From this time last year, um, in I think it was actually around March last year, we had school closures mm-hmm. for pollution. It was that toxic the air. Right. This time, one year later, and the numbers are the lowest ever. And it is even, so incredible Even just to a see. couple months ago, January this year, um, the start of coronavirus, you know, before that even started, we were having to wear, we already, the two of us bought our own N95 masks mm. because it was so bad outside. It was like over, you know, 300 PPM. You know, that really like prepared us for the corona because we yeah. already had masks. We had a bunch of masks. Mm. But yeah, so... That is the first initial thing that we can see. We can literally see because of skyscrapers, other buildings in Bangkok that we can now see clearer in a distance that used to be more in a foggy, in a foggy haze that just because of the traffic, it's, it's improved. Um, because the traffic's gone down, the, the sight lines have improved and the pollution has improved. Um, I think the topic that I kind of want to round off today is just a little bit of how we have been coping. So, uh, and that's one, how, how one part have you been of coping, Gary? <laughs> one part of the question, right? How are we holding up? Uh, well, a lot of animal crossing is the, <laughs> the real answer to that. No, but I mean, a brief history of going of the ups and downs of the quarantine and how we took it so seriously and stuff was I was taking it very seriously even in February knowing it was going to spread after it was um, left China and it was in Italy and Iran out of all the people I know you were the first person who took it seriously you were taking it seriously before everyone else you were really like saying we need to wash everything the minute we come home right I was going to leave my work at the end of March and during February I was watching the trends of coronavirus and I was so fixated on it that I just couldn't I didn't want to stay on at my my previous job anymore because I I knew that a quarantine was most likely going to come but also I just I I couldn't uh focus on work anymore knowing that this was happening so I just wanted to leave and start preparing and and um, I basically, it, I, I, looking back, it feels so little time that um, I had started before everyone else. But at the time, it felt like I was a prepper. I felt like I was a crazy person, like, bunkering I up. felt that way about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Meanwhile, back in February, I was traveling internationally to Vietnam. Oh my God, yeah. And Vietnam was, in my eyes, one of the first countries that took it truly seriously. All schools, even when I traveled there, had been closed for a few weeks. And things were starting to get stricter and stricter about um, wearing masks and things like that. And I went there just for a weekend. But I... I was nervous in the airport a little bit because I was there for so long. So I was wearing my mask and my gloves. But I wasn't too worried about it at that stage, really. It was only a few weeks after that that I started to think, okay, this is a big deal. And if I'm really honest, uh, in the early stages, I thought, this is an overreaction of the world. I said... You know, I'm big into conspiracy theories and I was thinking the world is covering up something else. It's just the flu. Why are they making such a big deal of it? Oh, I still have friends that believe it's a problem. They're not, they don't think that coronavirus is a problem, but they're, you know, not necessarily like huge right wing people that are like, open up the government and all this stuff or open up the economy. But I, I do have friends that think that it is a way that oppor- like governments are being opportunistic with their surveillance and control and all that stuff. Yeah, I don't think that, but I, I think back in the early days, I did think, oh, this is a big overreaction. And I don't know, I didn't feel like following the, I didn't feel like overreacting myself. I thought... I'm just going to do my normal thing. But it was, wasn't for until a few weeks later that I started to really think, okay, this is a problem. And once I realized it was a problem, I came fully on board with everything, with being taking it very seriously. I started to not want to go to work and keep my distance from people in work. And I was annoyed when we'd have, towards the end of finishing, I was a bit annoyed about having meetings and things like that i was thinking we need to finish and we need to distance ourselves yeah i was like quarantined at home but then you would leave and come home every day and so i was so annoyed i'm like i'm still being i'm still being uh you know potentially put at risk by you leaving the house and in truth i'm not worried about my own health and the people you were around weren't taking it seriously too so it's really hard to you're so influenced by the people around you you know I wasn't, I'm, I'm still not fully worried about my own health, even though it could be potentially extreme. I am worried now. I am worried now that I've heard of a lot of young people dying. But I'm most worried about our next door neighbor, who we interact with via the balcony. But more importantly, our little dog, Chloe. When, when you're saying via the balcony, we're not, we're not interacting we don't have a shared balcony but no. we our balconies join so we can but the our dog goes between him. yeah it's mostly chloe going over and to visit. she goes over there and he looks after her regularly and she loves going over there and i don't want to be you know breathing on my dog <laughs> and then him getting sick it's the whole thing of people thinking like, well, we can be other around other people that are quarantining, but that's they've done the they've shown studies and like simulations and like if people well, we don't need to get into it. It's like people start slipping a little bit and like contacting one other people one other person and it starts 
going down a path. But either way, yes, that's really our weakest link is Chloe, uh, Chloe's fur. (laughs) But yeah, we do a good, a good job cleaning her off whenever she goes out for a walk and everything. Um, And then, yeah, I guess to to round it off, I don't want to spend too long going over the last eight weeks, but just kind of, there was a time when I was very anxious and, uh, and there was times when, when we were, you know, a little bit better about it. I think Animal Crossing for me was a big one for you, maybe journaling, reading. Um, to deal with anxiety? Yeah, like, I feel like... the roller coaster that we, especially, I feel like, I can't believe, for me it's been eight weeks, for you it's been more like six since you've really I been home. I feel like home. what I've really done to combat anxiety has been, when I, when I first was off work, I would read the news every day, and that had to go, because that was really ramping up my anxiety, so... I try to change my habits, especially in the morning and getting into things like reading, journaling. And I finally feel so grateful to be able to have the time to do a gratitude journal every day, to do self-development work every day. And every morning I spend doing that. And it's really been like amazing to have the time to do it. Right. And, and from, it's really helped me with dealing with the anxiety from Corona. Yeah, and I had an anxious couple of weeks, and then I had I kind of eased off, and then now I'm trying to find a balance. And really, it's a lot about being productive, which I think we can talk about next time, and maybe some of the things we've been doing, some of the schedules we've been working on, because mm-hmm. um, we have some cool new, new days, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and our date nights. On, yes. on Saturday, which have been pretty awesome. So let's just tease those for now and uh, wrap up this episode. So this has been Holding Up. With, with Gary and Becky. Becky and Gary. I think with Becky and Gary. Yeah. <laughs>